This is the voice of the Pirates, Gary Cohen, and you are having the pleasure of listening to Tom and Mike on Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow! From Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? Good afternoon, Tommy. Doing well. Can't complain. 2-0 start to the Big East regular season. The new year is off and running. I got no complaints. I feel like we are going to have a happy and merry podcast so far. Oh my goodness, it's been one spectacular week for us, Mike. The Pirates go 2-0. We had the opportunity to interview the voice of the Pirates, Gary Cohen, earlier this week. How cool was that, and, huh? That, oh that man, was a lot it was spectacular. And from a personal note, Michael, I had a great basketball weekend. I coached four games for my three daughters my oldest of which dropped 12 points, man. She was just all over the place. It was fantastic. You are, you are throwing me off with your intros lately. The last one, it was the, the women's game against Butler. Now we're talking about girls 12 and under rec league basketball. Stay Maya focused on the K Pirates, was Tommy. burning the nets up, man. I don't know what, where what she say? got that range. It certainly wasn't for me. I'm always here, and I got a real Mikey back in on these podcasts. Am I, I going to start doing this with you? Stay focused on the Pirates. <laughs> I big am wins. We got two big wins. Hey, absolutely. And on this week's podcast, we will review Seton Hall's big wins against DePaul in Chicago and Georgetown in the home opener. We go behind enemy lines when Cincinnati Inquirer beat writer Adam Baum. We will also quickly preview the Seton Hall Marquette game. And finally, we will see how far down the road to 2494 Miles Powell was able to get after returning to the lineup from concussion. But first, Seton Hall 74 to Paul 66. The story of this game was it was a tale of two halves. DePaul controlled play in the first half, racing out the leads of 17-10 and 29-20. DePaul would push the lead to a game-high 10 points before the Hall would manage to reduce the margin to a manageable 6 points heading into the half, 37-31. In the first half, the Pirates had 11 turnovers, shot 37% from the field, and were 3 from 12 from 3. In the second half, they flipped the scripts and found their legs from deep, making four for eight. Miles Kale came back big, and his bucket made it 46-45, giving her haul the first lead since 10-9. The game went back and forth with six ties and nine lead changes until Miles Powell and the Hall dug in and closed out the final 214 on a 9-0 run. All right, stats for the game. Miles Powell, 27 points. But 18 big ones coming in the second half. He got most of them from the charity stripe, 11 of 15 from the line. And he did a little bit of everything with five rebounds and five steals to boot. We had a Miles Kale sighting with 16 points on six of eight shooting and six rebounds as well. Quincy McKnight finished with seven assists, and Jared Roden had 10 off the bench all in the first half. For DePaul, they were led by Paul Reed with 17 and nine, and Charlie Moore with 13 points but on four of 16 from the floor and a total of eight turnovers. The Seton Hall defense was also a tale of two halves. Seton Hall held DePaul to nine of 34 from the field and only 27% shooting in the second half. Romaro Gill had four big blocks and the team collectively had 10 steals and seven more rejections. They also got 24 points 
off of DePaul turnovers. It really was spearheaded by the defense to pull out this victory in the second half. Mike, this game was led by a return of not only one Miles, but two Mileses. Miles Powell obviously came back from the concussion and played a total of 34 minutes. I guess we were a big fat fact on that when we said Willard was playing possum, huh? Kind of felt like that was kind of obvious. I mean, I thought he was going to play bigger minutes in the Georgetown game and he was going to get more 20 to 25 in this game. They needed this win. There was an opportunity to seize it in the second half. Powell wasn't coming off that floor. I mean, and he wasn't afraid to get back in the fray the way he likes to play. He likes to play with a reckless abandon. And when he's not shooting the three, he's going at the basket hard. There was no times that I thought that he was being timid to do. I mean, he was hitting the he was hitting the ground hard like he always does and go into the free throw line. No, and it was kind of frightening from a fan's perspective. You know, Miles does those drives. He ends up on his back. There was actually a little bit of a noggin knocker in the first half that got everybody kind of kind of the tingly inside worried about him for a second. But he was his normal, you know, reckless abandon out there. It was nice to see. He's just a special player. We take it for granted. Here's a guy coming off a concussion. Most players would be rusty. Most people would have to kind of get back into the flow of the game. I mean, he scores 27 points, and we're like, ah, he had a bad first half with nine. I mean, that's ridiculous that we describe him this way. But he's a closer. I mean, I I don't know who's going to be that on this team next year, but I'm not worried about that right now. We just have to enjoy what we have in front of us. He scores 10 of the team's final 14 points. Regardless of how many games he, he missed in the beginning of the season and probably threw off, you know, some of the opportunities to break the Harris record that we'll talk about later on. But if he puts the team on his back like he did in this DePaul game, he is still going to have major opportunities to rack up the accolades as the year progresses. He just he's going to. This this team has the ability to still be very successful and he's gonna be at the the center of it all. But more importantly, Mike, we come to expect Miles Powell to do that stuff. Miles Kale came back. I don't know what happened, but he woke up just in time to get ready for the Big East Conference play. He scored 16 points. He shot well from the from long distance. He was diving on the floor. He, I mean, he was playing everywhere. It was nice to see him come back. This is where you and I disagree, though. We were texting each other during the game. I thought he had a pretty quiet first half. I, I know you don't feel that way. I don't know how you say that. He had six points in the first half. He he was averaging six points right there. You should have said, hey, he's having a good game. It's not about the box score all the time. And But to me, it was the eye test. Forget about the team playing bad basketball in the first half. It was the eye test of Kale's effort specifically. He was so much more active in the second half, diving on the floor, getting deflections again. There are two parts to his game where he could be very timid around the perimeter or he can be involved in all facets of the game. And that second half to me was night and day to the first, regardless of whether it was 10 points compared to six. I don't know. It just stood out differently to me. As much as you complain about me bagging on Sandra all the time, you just love bagging on Kale. I'm not bagging on Kale. I'm trying to say he had a great second half, but but it was it was starkly different to what he brought in the first. That's all. I don't know. I don't buy it. Who else had a good game? Romaro Gill had a good game. The, the boy's a game changer. We went from, I feel like it's a broken record. It went from our very first podcast a year and a half ago to what we're going to get from Gil to, wow, he's going to contribute to. Now he is a major game influencer. And you got John Rothstein, of all people, out on Twitter after the game saying, Don't do it, Mike. He's going to make a T-shirt out of it. Don't do it. It's a good quote, though. And you know I love my quotes. So Romaro Gill might be the best defensive athlete the state of New Jersey has seen since Martin Brodeur played goalie for the Devils. Completely changed the game tonight for Seton Hall. A menace on the front line at the rim. I could already see John Rothstein trying to shill T-shirts with Romaro Gill and hockey pads. I don't want oh, to see it, man. With the, with the big pads and the mask? <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> but he did have two big game-altering blocks late and threw down a huge dunk to put him up four. It felt like when that dunk went down, that that changed the tide of the game. I know it was late, but it was kind of almost like an exclamation point, even though they'd only had the lead for a few moments out of that game. When that dunk went down, you kind of felt like DePaul was just like, oh, you know, that, that we're down by two possessions now. It was, one, it was like a, a minute and a half to go. It just felt like the Seton Hall Pirates had kind of grabbed control of the game after that play. I mean, that's a huge bucket for a guy that 
offense is an added bonus typically but i have a criticism with gill's performance in that DePaul game of course you do it's had- not sandro so of course you're going to criticize him okay I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be you know cr- not critical but i'm trying to be like fair and judgmental when we watch this game is is it just me or does it seem like Roe is trying to block every shot underneath the sun? And I know you like that about what he does, but he finds himself consistently off balance and out of position for the opportunity to get a rebound. And it's not just Gill, it's both big guys. I went back and watched this game specifically to chart how many balls Ike and Roe challenged and how many times they either altered or blocked a shot versus how many times the opposition got a bucket, a foul, or an extra, extra possession due to their them being over-aggressive and not hitting the defensive glass. They had nine total shots blocked or altered, and they had nine possessions where it favored the other team because they were over-aggressive on their block attempts. I love the fact that they get in the other team's head. I just want to see them have a little better basketball IQ as to when they can block a shot versus when it's more prudent to turn around and box out. That's I don't all. know. I, I I don't mind the over-aggression because if we had other folks blocking out, we're taking those boards now. I mean, I think it's a matter of a lot of times when they're over-aggressive is when guys get beat and they're going to the rim and they're trying to alter that shot at that point. So, you know, I mean, it's a team game. Okay. I, and okay. and, okay. and so- you know what? This is, the, this is one of the reasons Roden's grabbing tons of rebounds because – He's uh, he's getting down there and grabbing those boards that say a less jumpy center would get. So so can we take a different uh, defensive philosophy and say if we're going to let Ike and Gill play with this reckless abandon for blocking every shot, then we have a team effort crashing the glass defensively. Oh, okay. and you know maybe. Maybe one guy leaks out. We don't have to have everybody leaking out. Give me give me four guys hitting the glass. I, I, I don't know. Why are we leaking out? We're not running that much anyway. <laughs> It'd be nice to get some offense off of our defense. I mean, we're not we're not that good offensively yet. We're all of a sudden we should just take it for granted in the half court. But you know, giving up easy offensive putbacks is very frustrating. Uh, anyway, give me give me some other quick observations from this. Okay, game. but let's talk about the other guys that played. Tyree Samuel continues to show some promise. Seven points, six boards, and got a first start on a road game to start the Big East Conference play, man. That's big, man. He looked pretty good out there. I'd have to go back to the interview that we just did with Gary Cohen, and Gary's like, hey, if you were really into that game, it was late. He gets the ball in the right corner. Defender comes flying at him, poised on the road, close tight ball game. He fakes one dribble to his left, hits the three. Should have been a three at his foot on the line, worst shot in basketball. But he hits the long jump shot, and I think that put the hole down by one. That's a big-time play by a freshman. He's got such a, 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 a high ceiling for his potential. It's really exciting. And Gary pointed that out in his interview, so it's not just us seeing that. A lot of people are starting to point out that, that talent level. Uh, but conversely, I thought Nelson had a rough game. Nelson three did turnovers. Have, well, the point guards in general had a rough game on the offensive side. So two had a rough game on the offensive side, but man, the guy's a bulldog, right? You know, he basically got all up into Charlie Moore. And in the second half, Moore goes one for six from the floor with only five points and a total of five turnovers. So I, as long as Q is going to bring it on that side of the floor, I I get it. His offense some nights is going to be kind of, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. But if his defense is there, I'm happy. I want to see Nelson play as well as he played in the two games when Powell was out. Like I said, three turnovers. And I went back and watched the tape again, looking specifically for this. He got blown by to the basket for a bucket or a foul on three separate occasions. It was was pretty eye-opening. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention the night Jared Roden had now scored 10 points, kind of was instant offense, did have himself some foul trouble. You know what didn't happen in this game? Back to our factor fiction focus. The Twin Towers did not take the court at the same time. Well, right, we're, just, and, and like we said, we're not small when we start Tyrese Samuel. That's not a small front line. Come on. It's it just silly. Speaking, I, I just, I, I thought, I, yeah, I thought it was a stupid comment. And speaking of stupid comments. Oh, we got to work on these segues, man. But anyways, <laughs> pick on one of the announcers. Go ahead. So on the call was Lisa Binington and Steve Lavin. And Lisa makes a comment saying very early in the game, the top 10 win versus number seven Maryland was arguably their best win so far this year without their top two scores. And you're, you're asking me, is, is that an actual dumb comment? I, I think so, because if you're arguably saying it was their best win, that means there's 
a couple other games that you can compare it to. Well, what other game was a big win for us? Uh, it's more obvious than dumb. I think we're nitpicking at that point. So, I mean, there's worse things that announcers have said. Well, I Okay, so I'll give her a pass. Maybe she just wordsmithed at that time. But at halftime, when Andy Katz is on the panel, I expect Andy to kind of have a higher level of knowledge. And they basically said that he thought that this would be a huge quad one win for DePaul since Seton Hall is 33 in the net rankings. Hey, Andy, last time I checked, you have to beat a top 30 team at home for it to be a quad one win in the net system. So shame on him for not knowing his facts of how the net system works. I know it's in its uh, only it's in its second season, but I expect someone like Andy Katz to, to know what he's talking about. Andy Katz should know better. We had a second game of Friday night special, Mike. The lower bowl at the Rock was sold out, and it didn't disappoint. It was a fun game to watch. Seton Hall, 78. Georgetown, 62. Georgetown, surprisingly, got out to a quick early start, 7-2. But four, yes, count them, four. Miles Kale threes led to a 19-7 pirate run over the next seven minutes for a 21-14 lead midway through the first half. After a fifth Miles Kale three-pointer and a Shavar Reynolds traditional three-point play, the lead ballooned to 17, and the Pirates carried that same margin into half, 41-24. The second half consisted of several mini runs back and forth for each team, but Georgetown never got closer than 11. Mac McClung and Quincy McKnight got into a late-game scuffle that resulted in several ejections for players leaving their respective benches, but cooler heads prevailed, and the Pirates coasted to a comfortable victory. Okay, the stat line from this one, the production basically came from the starters for the Pirates. In my opinion, the player of the game was Romaro Gill. He had a career-high 17 points, 8 rebounds, and another 4 blocks. Miles Kell was back at it again, with 16 points and six rebounds, duplicating his stat line from the previous game. Quincy McKnight had 14 points, 10 assists, and zero turnovers as part of his double-double. Miles Powell may have had an off night, but still finished with 15 points, six assists, and four rebounds. And Jared Roden just missed a double-double himself with nine points and nine boards. For the opposition, Max McClung led the Hoyas with 20 points, but on 7 of 20 shooting as they were held well below their season average of 80 points per game. Seton Hall's D once again held Georgetown to under 36% shooting. We were plus five on the glass and added eight steals and another seven blocks. Offensively, they shot nine of 21 from distance and handed out 18 assists on 25 made field goals. It was as almost as a complete game as the Pirates have played all season. Now, before we start looking into any of the particular players that performed really well in this game, Mike, I was watching and I was thinking to myself, man, we're doing a good job with this tempo. We're really kind of dictating to Georgetown what's going to happen rather than the other way around. I mean, Georgetown likes to move that ball up and down. You said they score 80 points a game. Uh, Ava Wallace from the Washington Post, when we had her on last week, said similar things. And it just seemed like we weren't letting them get into that up and down kind of rhythm. I, I really I really felt comfortable this game. I don't remember the last time I felt comfortable about a Seton Hall game. I do. It was the last time we played Georgetown in the Big East tournament. <laughs> it, it's, it's weird because, you know, we it's played them twice. It is. It is. But we played them twice towards the end of the Big East regular season last year. And then we played them in the first round of the Big East tournament. So we played them four times in a rather short window of play. And the three times that they've won, it's the most comfortable I felt about a Seton Hall victory or the most satisfied I felt about observing their overall performance in those three wins. I mean, we're talking about three blowout wins in the last four times that we played them, and the loss happens to be a you know a heartbreaker in double overtime down at their place. You're, you're right. I just you kind of sit back and I was observing. I was enjoying. Normally, I'm on pins and needles, and I have Ajita, and, and that just wasn't the case. So I I completely agree with you. So let's go to the players that did their thing. Uh, this is becoming a normal thing for us, Mike. Romaro Gill had a spectacular game from all facets, man. He scored. He blocked. He rebounded, Michael. 
he had a great game. So the question becomes, can he keep it up? You know, I, we listened to the Willard post game in the, after DePaul, and he was like, I yelled at Roe for the fact that he can never back up his, his performances night in and night out. And now as a senior, they need that. Well, now he's done it three out of the last four games, right? Maryland dominant. DePaul, game changer towards the end of the second half and start to finish in the Georgetown game. Keep on saying it. He's a game changer. He really makes the other team have to respect that he's on the floor. I, I just never thought I'd be describing Romaro Gill in that capacity. I mean, he's a solid free throw shooter. I mean, when was the last time we had a big that actually made consistent free throws? <laughs> hey, hey, I'll tell you what, man. Omar Yurt Seven, the starting center for the Georgetown Hoyas, wanted nothing to do with Rogel. And, you know, nope. we tease we tease the announcers quite a bit about dumb things they said, but there was something interesting. Uh, that I can't remember which one of them said it was. They were saying Omar did a lot of feasting on smaller players, on guys that were 6'8", and maybe a little athletic, so they're trying to guard him. But all of a sudden, Omar's got to look up to a legit seven foot two player, and he just didn't have it in him, man. He didn't have any fight. That dog had no fight. He just he just crawled back into the kennel. So this is becoming a little bit of a game. Like, can you say legit seven two in every podcast? Is now becoming like a little a little thing we got going on. I think it's uh, a drinking game. Hopefully, the guys commuting to work aren't drinking when they hear this. So Len Elmore was giving the description, and Len was a very very good big man back in his day. And so I respect Len, and he talks a lot about fundamentals and positioning and, you know, game circumstance. And he was spot on, I thought, with everything that he said. He talked about you're at seven playing against smaller guys and liking to play with his back to the basket. And he couldn't do that against Gill. Gill was walling up. Gill was holding his position. And you saw you're at seven take a lot of fadeaway jump shots. And every time that he did that, Elmore was all over him. He basically got taken out of his game. And Elmore basically said that you're at seven is essentially given up from the body language every time he got the ball in the post. That's amazing that you could take a guy who was averaging 22 a game since the other players had uh, transferred off their roster and all of a sudden hold him to three for 14 and his first game where he doesn't reach double figures for the season. The minute that he, he got taken out of the game by Gill, I hate to say it, this game was over. It just was. He was really frustrated. Gill really kind of stopped him from doing what he wanted to do. But you know who had a, had a rough game, but the frustration didn't get to him? Miles Powell. I mean, when's the last time we said Miles Powell had a rough game? He only scored three points in the first half, but he found a way in the second half when Georgetown was making one final push to extend that lead. And I'll say this, he hit a pair of threes toward the end of that game. That second three hit... And thank goodness FS1 had those that crowd mic'd because that crowd went nuts. You know, sometimes they're always wondering, is the crowd live? Is the crowd not live? Crowd was live on Friday night. His second three was lights out. That, that was the official end of that ball game to push the lead back to 20. I thought Powell's performance that we got in the Georgetown game was what we might get in the DePaul game. You know, one for six in the first half, trying to find his rhythm, taking some bad shots. And then all of a sudden when we needed him, he would turn it on in the second half and try to help us steal a win against DePaul. It was kind of the opposite. He played almost a complete game against DePaul, just had a bigger second half. In this Georgetown game, he, he kind of was still a little bit rusty. He was trying to find his way, but he his poor offensive shooting did not take him out of being a instrumental part of playing team basketball. Six assists. Have we had Miles have six assists in a game yet this year? I thought that, that was, I think that was a season high. And to be honest, he was playing that league guard role that Willard said he was going to give him a chance to do. This is the first time that we actually saw him do that, where he wasn't looking for his shot. He was looking for Gill off the pick and roll. It, it was it was kind of good. And it's not only Miles Powell and uh, Romaro Gill who we could talk about. A couple more guys had sensational nights. Miles Kale continues good biggies play. He had another 16 points. He was lights out in the first half from three. And again, who made a point of watching that second game on the Italian trip where Miles Kale was getting his feet set and boom, he was shooting well. He's not doing it off the dribble. He's a good spot up three shooter. And, and once again, there's Len Elmore pointing out that Georgetown needs to make him put it on the floor. He was clearly more confident as a catch and shoot player or out in transition. There was a couple times in the first half after he hit his first five where he tried to, you know, see if he still had his heat stroke, put it on the floor for a couple of dribbles, and then elevate, 
and he was front rimming it. He was short. It just not his game. That's okay. I, I'm fine if Kale's going to be putting in four to five three pointers in a game. <laughs> if that's what we got to do and find him a you know a good spot up opportunity. My concern was, and I'll ask you this: Was it coaching in the second half, or was it Georgetown adjusting that didn't allow Miles to get a shot from the floor other than two free throws? The entire second half. I, I don't think it's adjustment. I, I I think one thing with Miles, I think he falls in love with the three. I, I think he should use it to open up other facets of its game. And, and I still think we're missing the boat by not getting out on the break and having him kind of use his natural athleticism out there in the open court. So, I, I don't know. I think Ewing said, you know, we're not going to get beat with another five three-pointers by this kid. So do not leave your man. Did you see and, something and, different? I mean, I don't think I, did. I saw I did. I did. No, no, I this is not know. a this is to not this is not to this is not to criticize Kale whatsoever. Kale is a successful spot-up shooter. They did not leave him off the pick and roll action. So because they did not leave Kale off the pick and roll action, I thought Gill was more effective with the pick and roll in the second half. Than he was in the first half. I think he drilled a couple threes in that first half with guys in his face. I, I think he was hitting it. Yeah, I, yes I, and I no. There was, was there was rhythm. one. There was one where Miles kind of ran the pick and roll with Gill, and then he quickly kind of whipped it over his his left shoulder back to Miles Kale on the on the left free throw line extended three point kind of angle, and he was there was nobody near him. And why? Because the guy that was rolling off of Gill or the guy that was covering Kale was hedging down on the pick and roll attempt from Gill and kind of clogging the middle. The minute Kale was hitting those shots, guys were not cheating back into the lane. Gill was wide open for those dunks. So the fact that he can shoot the ball consistently just opens up the floor for everybody else. I mean, he's just, he's got to make that shot for us to be as good as we can be. And when he does, wow, what a revelation. All right, I got, I got one more thing on Kale because this bothered me. It's I'm, I'm nitpicking here a little bit, but he hits four three pointers and it's 1204 to go in, in the first half. And, Willard takes him out right after he hits the four three-pointer to put Shavar in the game. Cause I know Willard likes to do the Well, the TV timeouts coming up. So I'm going to, I'm going to get him a break here and then I'm going to, I'm going to get him some extra time. And the, uh, you know, the you know what I'm talking about. He does with like right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does it all the time with Powell. Fine. It's not Powell this time. It's, it's Miles Kale. The guy's red hot and we're going to take, he hasn't missed yet. We're going to take him out. And what happens? I'm not trying to bash on Javar here. He misses a three. He drives baseline and gets the ball stuffed down his throat. And then at 10 4 Kale is back in the game. He really needed a break. He needed a break. The guy's white hot. We got to take him out. Yeah, I don't know if I would have taken him out until he had missed at least one. Man, I would have right. rode. I would have rode that as far as I could have gone. But that's just me. What do I know? Ah, uh, like I said, I move on because there was there was some more good stuff here. Quincy McKnight was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. 10 assists, no turnovers. Oh man, when's the last time we saw that? Madison Jones know. in the first game of the season a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna, don't know. You think I'm the encyclopedia? I don't know the last time Madison Jones went ten and zero. Come on, stop it. I just, I, I'm, I'm not gonna even, I'm not gonna even warrant that. We're going back to like sports reference. <laughs> and like, here, here was my takeaway with this. We're always yo-yoing back and forth and saying, you know, LCP favorite. You know, uh, Anthony Nelson. Well, Q had a good game. Nelson had a good game. Back and who should play the point? I think I've come to the conclusion that for us to be successful as a team on a given night, we just need one of them <laughs> to play at a high level, right? We just need somebody out there playing a solid point guard. And on, on tonight's effort, it was clearly Quincy McKnight. You know, Nelson had his second straight poor performance. There's no way to sugarcoat it. He was driving in deep, leaving his feet and kind of, you know, turning the ball over. But so he didn't, he didn't earn the minutes tonight. And Q took complete advantage and he, he deserved to be on the bench because there was no reason to take Q out, to take Kale out, take Powell out. We should have been playing those three guards the entire game. Because this is what we do. It wasn't necessarily a complete game start to finish that we were hoping to see from the Pirates sometime this year. We still had 15 turnovers, and we were still out-rebounded on the offensive glass by an undermanned Georgetown team, 11-7. to Look, I, th I think we are dip-picking again. Maybe it's just in our nature. But this was as pretty close to a complete kind of performance than you're going to get. So you can always pick a couple things to get better on. And that's what Willard should do. You should never just let them read the press clippings and get cocky and overconfident. You know, find something that you could still coach up and, and build towards the next game. So, yeah, there was a couple things they could have cleaned up. But the reality is they took care of business. 
against a team that they should have beat. Here's Georgetown now undermanned, seven scholarship athletes on the roster. McClung is coming off the eye injury. We didn't play the game before, and they're on back-to-back road games. There's no reason not to beat Georgetown in this game. If you want to be in the upper echelon of the Big East, you got to win against Georgetown at home, right? You know, I'm probably going to sound a little blasphemous, but I like that McClung kid, man. He plays tough. And, you know, he had that little skirmish with Q at the end of the game. That was frustration. He's come he's coming off the injury. They're getting beat relatively handily at that point. I like that reminds kid, you, man. Reminds you a little bit like J.P. McCure, right? Oh, I saw but, that. I don't know if I, I, I buy that. I don't think J.P. Do, was as good a player as Mac is. I don't know. I like the kid. You, you hate him if he's on the other team. You love him if he's on I, your team. I don't no? hate him, man. The kid balls. I like him. He's got a good little game. And he, you know <sighs> what? For being like, you know, five foot six that he is, he's not afraid to go out there and, and mix it up a little bit. No, no. Yeah, he, he can get up and play above the rim. But there were a couple guys that played above the rim in these two games. And for me, those are the, whoa, did you see that moment for the week? And I know you're not going to agree with me here. So I'm going to give you my two, and you can shoot them down all you want because I know you don't want to give any love to the opposition, but Paul Reed had a facial dunk on Gill, and Jagan Mosley also posterized Gill for the second straight game. Both of those dunks were high above the rim, two or three steps, ball cuff, cuffed at, you know, at the elbow, boom. You know, the, the most overrated concept in basketball is this posterization concept. And, and I'm glad you went to this here because you've got normally a guy who's got a full head of steam running at you. He's made some move on the wing or on the baseline and he's coming as fast and as hard as he can. And you got someone defending the rim at a standstill and all of a sudden you the guy with all that force should be the one that throws the ball down so what i'm going to give my woe did you see that moment to is gill saying nah mosley not again we're blocking this one baby Look, I, that's fine. That's fine. But but those two dunks were monster. They dunks. were big. They were good dunks. I'm not giving. I'm not giving. You know, Georgetown any love after an eight, 16, 18 point loss. No, I'll, no, thank I'll, you. I'll, I gave him enough love you. by saying McClung had a good game. I'll ask you this just to wrap up this bullet point. If those two dunks were by Seton Hall players, and you were comparing those two dunks to Gill's block, who's getting the woe? Did you see that moment for the week? Is it is it the the two dunks? Is, or is Gill's, Gill's block still on point? our team? Oh, geez. Okay. I'm going to have to agree to disagree on the woe did you see that moment. No, they were, I, uh, they let, were monster dunks, but I don't put much uh, credence into the whole posterization thing. So, All right, let, let, let's do this. Before we move on to next week, let, let's talk about and kind of, you know, surmise what we kind of accomplished or what the team accomplished with these two wins. Going into the DePaul game, I, and we were kind of taken back by the fact that in our prediction segment last week, we thought they were probably going to lose to DePaul. Now, DePaul has subsequently lost back-to-back home games to us and now Providence. So maybe the the bloom is coming off their rose a little bit, but the reality is DePaul is not the last 10 years of DePaul. It's closer to your dad's DePaul, as you said. So any road win in the Big East is going to be a good win. It was a ugly, ugly first half for the Pirates, and we kind of downplayed it in the way we recapped the game. I'm just happy that they got out of the dodge with a win. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that going forward, that you're happy to get out of DePaul with a win, but we did. We took care of business against Georgetown. I'm very happy with the 2-0 and and where they sit. See, so- now you bring this up, and now I remember our messages back and forth from the DePaul game, and I'm so glad we don't sit next to each other watching this game. Yes, the first half was hard on the eyes, but they went into a game against a red-hot DePaul team, yeah, didn't okay. play all that well in the first half, and close. had us and, and ended up with only being down six, which is quite doable. That that's that's forty five seconds of Miles Powell's life, and okay. that second okay, so, half we played fabulous. Oh, we played great in the second half. All right, we didn't pick on Willard's quotes in these, either of these two games, but he was quoted after the DePaul game of telling his team at halftime, "Hey guys, we got him right where we want him. You got him right where we want this him." Oh, uh, you snuck in the quotes again, Mike. You're killing me. Uh, so my opinion on this last week pretty much mirrors yours. 
we got a road win, which is gold in this Big East Conference. You get a few more of those road wins and you take care of your business at home. And all of a sudden, you forget about the troubles we had in the out-of-conference. And now we're picking up steam. So, man, it, it was a fabulous week. Absolutely yeah, fabulous. Totally. You want to try to go eight and one, seven and two at home and, you know, control your home court, use that as a uh, significant advantage, and then try to play, you know, slightly above 500 on the road, five and four, you know, getting one out of the way. That, it, it's a big accomplishment. I don't want to overhype the first two games, but it puts them in a good position. We talked about it. You take it and combine it with the Prairie View and the Maryland win. And we said it with Ava Wallace kind of winning cures all a little bit, right? So now all of a sudden they're on a four-game winning streak. You see the, your name at the top of the Big East standings, and we move on to, you know, two crucial games to start next week that could really launch you, you know, to that number one, number two kind of foothold in the Big East standings. So, so let's do that. Now, because of schedules rearing their ugly heads again, we spoke to Adam Baum of the Cincinnati Inquirer uh, on Thursday, right before we did the interview with Gary Cohen. As a matter of fact, Tom, uh, Xavier has finished taking care of business this Sunday. Uh, they held on for an eight-point victory, 75-67 to 67, uh, against St. John's. So as you referenced, you know that was not context uh, that Adam had available uh, going into the Q&A that we had uh, previewing Seton Hall. He is a graduate of the University of Cincinnati and was once the sports information director of the Southwest Ohio Conference. Currently, he is the Xavier basketball beat writer at the Cincinnati Inquirer. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Adam Baum. Adam, how are you today? I'm doing well, man. We got some overcast skies here in Cincinnati, but other than that, it's, uh, it's a great day. We, we probably shouldn't give him the forecast then here in San Diego, huh? <laughs> I don't want to hear it. <laughs> so, Adam, Xavier came into the season ranked in the top 25, kind of similar to how Seton Hall was, and eventually fell out. They've compiled some decent out-of-conference wins so far against really good Kempom and net-ranked teams, teams such as Missouri, UConn, Cincinnati, and TCU. But currently, they project to be all quad two winners come Selection Sunday. In your opinion, did Xavier do enough in the Atta Conference to bolster their NCAA tournament resume? No. Honestly, you know, you mentioned their wins, and th to me, those are kind of marginal at best. I mean, the kind of the key games that they, that they really needed were they needed Florida on that neutral floor. And, you know, the fact that they dropped one – to, to Wake Forest, uh, it just I, I think that if Xavier's going to make the NCAA tournament, it's not going to be on what they did in the non-conference. It's going to be what they what they can do in the Big East. Okay, that makes sense. But uh, here's what I noticed in some of those losses that you were talking about. It seems like they got kind of stuck in extended scoring droughts that basically have kind of kicked in at some point in the first half of the game, and then have ultimately dug them some deep holes. For example. Florida hit them with a 19 to nine run over six and a half minutes. Wake Forest hit them with a 14 to five run that lasted about six minutes. And most recently in the Nova game, Nova had a 17 0 run that got stretched out to 22 to five over nine plus minutes in the first half. You know, what's the root cause of this issue and what can they do to avoid it going forward? Well, you, you touched on one of the things that, that I was actually talking to a colleague about earlier today. And that's, I think if you look at this Xavier team, there's some things that, that you can really like that you can re that you really enjoy about the way that they play. And then there are quite a few red flags and you mentioned a big one. And that's the fact that quite often this season, we've seen Xavier go into really deep scoring alls on the offensive end. I think the fact that that happens and the fact that it happens so frequently, I think you couple that and it puts added pressure on your defense. This is a team that has been very vocal about the fact that, defense is their identity they, they need to shut teams down they need to bring that defense on the road in order to win games and I think when your offense sputters sometimes for extended periods of time I think it puts so much pressure on that defense that that that's been you know a major factor in Xavier's inconsistency so far this year 
Can that can that defense though kind of offset those droughts? They've only giving up about sixty four points a game. You know, is that enough balance to overcome those droughts? Yeah, for sure. And I think that that defense is a big reason why they've been able to get out of or to get back into some of these games when it looks like they could very well get out. I mean, the the Florida game down in Charleston. I thought Florida was going to beat them by about – there was a point there where I thought Florida might beat them by 30 or 40 points. And to Xavier's credit, they've been able to – even in all three of those games that, they, that they've that they lost, they've been able to climb their way back in, and I think that that really has started with their defense. Well, clearly Xavier's not without top-end talent. The team is led by preseason Big East first teams and Najee Marshall. I mean, he's averaging 16 points a game, five rebounds, three assists. But his play to date has been a little inconsistent. I mean, he had 31 points in the win against hated Cincinnati, only six in the loss against Florida, only eight in the win against TCU. And against Nova in 40 minutes, he only grabbed two boards. I mean, Marshall's just too talented a player for his performance to be at that uneven. Any idea why the highs and lows have come to him this year? I think that the the question you just posed to me is a question that, that Xavier head coach Travis Steele routinely struggles with himself because Travis has talked more than once this season about the fact that one of the problems is that they don't know what they're going to get night in and night out from, from the guys that, that they really rely on. I mean, you mentioned Najee Marshall and the fact that, that he's been quite inconsistent. You could really say the same thing about every single guy in their starting lineup. And I think that's a big problem. And the the strongest performances that this Xavier team has had this season have been the games when those guys have all been on the same page and they've all shown up. But there have been far too many circumstances where whether it's a Najee Marshall or a Tyreek Jones or a Quentin Gooden, that one of those guys has an off night and sort of disappears and it creates this huge void that then it puts pressure on another guy in that lineup to step up and fill. And I think that that, that that's another thing that this team really has to try to correct and figure out because there is not really a rhyme or reason as to why Najee might have an off night or, or why another guy might sort of fade away. So that's a big question mark right now, early in the, in the conference part of the season. Well, now I don't feel so bad. I feel like every podcast we do, we're trying to figure out why the supporting cast for Seton Hall is so inconsistent, specifically Miles Kale. And Tom is constantly scratching his head to say, one game you, you get it, and the next game he completely disappears. So I, I guess I feel a little bit better. With that. We're not the only ones in the country facing this problem now. So the statistics say Xavier isn't going to beat you from behind the three-point line. So far this year, they only shoot 29% as a team. They were one for 11 against Nova the other day. And Travis Steele said after that game specifically, I don't care about our three-point shooting. It didn't cost us the game. I think we're one of the best two-point field goal teams in the country. That's who we are, and we're going to play to our strengths. Yet they averaged 20 attempts per game behind the line. You know, is the key to, for Seton Hall to win this game to dare Xavier to shoot threes and just keep him out of the paint? I think that's that's going to be something that every head coach Xavier plays for the rest of the season is going to decide before the game even starts. They're going to say, because we've seen kind of both sides of that coin this year. We've watched defenses really just pack it in and say, you know what, here's the three point line. If you knock them down, you can beat us. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that you see that elevated three point number is because there have been times this year when teams have just flat out dared them to say, you know what, we know you like to drive it. We know you like to post it. We're going to do everything in our power to take that away from you and force you to do something that you're not as comfortable with, which is shoot three-point shots. So I think I think that's going to be a very telling thing for how the rest of this season goes is how teams decide to defend Xavier because, you know, you're going to tell very early on in that game whether Seton Hall's game plan is, to say, you know what, we're just gonna we're just gonna play solid man to man. We're gonna stick on you guys everywhere you go, or you know what, we're gonna give you some space. We're gonna protect the paint, try to double up when your guys drive to the rim, and and, and leave a guy out there posted up on the three point line and say, you know what, if you hit it, you hit it. So that's a, that's a huge question 
Well, here's another stat that kind of jumped off the page to me. You know, senior Tyreek Jones is averaging a double-double at 13 and 10, but he's only getting 24 minutes a game. And then I decided to take a look at his uh, his game logs. And conversely, they don't indicate that he's been in a lot of major foul trouble. What is there any reason why Travis Steele hasn't found more floor time for him? I think I think it's twofold. I actually got this question on Twitter the other day, and the the, the reasoning that I've that I've kind of stumbled upon with this is I think there there have been a few games this year where where Tyreek's picked up two early fouls, and that's kind of caused him to to go over to the side for basically the rest of the first half. But I think the the reasoning is because I think he's trying to protect him, keep him pressure, keep him out of foul trouble. But he also really likes the the freshman Zach Fremantle, who, you know, like Najee, are two good old New Jersey boys. So, um, I think part of that is, you know, what I'm going to protect Tyreek. I'm going to limit his minutes, keep him out of foul trouble, keep him as fresh as possible. But I also really like this freshman, and, and I want to get him in the game and kind of see what we have here with him. Mike usually likes finding these interesting facts, but I'll tell you what, I found an interesting fact that I couldn't believe when I saw it. The other day I read that Xavier has the seven best winning percentage in the nation all time with a 266 and 41 mark in the 20 year history of the Synthes Center. That's a stellar 87% winning percentage. Seton Hall, in its own right, is only two and four there since Xavier joined the Big East. What makes that building such a competitive advantage for the Musketeers? Yeah, well, the the easy answer is that, that it's loud. I think that you know one of the things that you find out. You mentioned it earlier. The the Cincinnati, the two point six miles away, is such a heated rival. I think one of the things that that it's done particularly in Cincinnati is it's created this it's us against them us against everyone else mentality so the the Cintas uh, I'm shocked well I'm not I guess I'm not shocked anymore but it's like every time you're there you're sitting there in your seat and people just keep coming in I mean the place is filled up every single night and, and they love their hoops there man I think Xavier also has you know we're not going to get too far into the weeds here but they all, they have this kind of little man complex almost. I mean, this was a program that back in the 60s and 70s really struggled. I mean, there was a time when they actually thought about dropping from Division One down into Division Three, and some you know some very smart people persuaded them against that and said this is the path that we're going to get on and take. So they've kind of come all this way from being independent without a conference to the to the MCC to the A10 and now to the Big East. And I think that it's it's extended to the fan base to the point where they feel like, you know what, we have to prove something every single night that we're in that building. We have to prove that we care about this deeply. So I think that that has, has lent itself largely to the reason why they've been so good inside that building. So you've talked a little bit about the history of the building, but what about the history of the coaches? I remember Skip Prosser was probably, you know, one of the most instrumental coaches in that chain that kind of helped turn the program around. Was it more the leadership of the man in charge or is it more the loyal fan base that you just talked about? I think that at some point it became, you know, one said the other almost, Uh, you know, you had Bob Stack who a lot of people really attribute to the initial turnaround of the program. I think, he took them to their first NCAA tournament. And then Pete Gillen was next up in line. He eventually got them some success in the NCAA tournament. And then Skip Prosser. It's like this ball has just kept rolling in a way. And and I think that it's been it's been leadership, but it's also been the support that they've received from the fan. I mean, they're they're a small school that but their fan base is is as passionate as it gets. Well, I mean, it looks like Xavier has another good coach at the helm currently right now in Travis Steele. But it, for this particular season, it looks like Travis is relying heavily on his starters as four of his guys are giving you 30-plus minutes a game. And with the news today of four-star freshman Amir Bishop entering the transfer portal, it leaves the rotation only eight deep. You already kind of mentioned this player's name. Is New Jersey local product freshman Zach Fremantle from Teaneck, New Jersey – the X factor off the bench against the pirates. 
against the tall front line they got to go up against? To me, you hit the nail on the head because you the thing that immediately stands out about this matchup to me is, you know, now what I know, um, I, I won't do him the disservice of butchering his entire name, but Sandro, um, obviously not having him, that hurts, but Seton Hall's got a noticeable size advantage. And Zach Fremantle's been the guy this year when Tyreek has, for whatever reason, come out of the game. And Fremantle's been arguably, I mean, there's no if about it. He's been their most consistent, most reliable, most impressive guy coming off the bench. Now, he is a freshman, and I think that you see that come through at times, particularly on the defensive end. But he's going to be, what he gives them off the bench when he plays and he's productive those have been clear advantages for Xavier this year. And I think, he, you know, he, the upside on him is tremendous. He's going to continue to get better. He's a guy who's going to develop an outside shot. He already really has. He's knocked down a – he took one three this year at TCU and knocked it down. So that's going to be an area of his game at some point. But he's going to be instrumental in this. Okay, so, so I know the news only broke this morning, but is there any more to the Bishop story relative to why he transferred him in? Mean, I know he was a four-star recruit. And he wasn't getting the time that he probably wanted. Is, is there more to it than that? Not really. I think that from what I have heard in the conversations that I've had, I think it was purely kind of a playing time thing. I think it's also interesting, the timing of it. You know, they're out of school right now, so they're on winter break. They just went to Villanova, Philadelphia. Damir Bishop is from Philadelphia. His family all came to that game. And they basically showed up and watched him not touch the floor. So I think – I think all those factors kind of play into it, but I think that this was a playing time issue with him. Well, not for nothing. You know, when we were looking this up, he's not shooting worth a darn. It's it's like, hey, freshman, you know, get your game up and you'll get some minutes, no? Correct, yeah. And Travis has said that many times in press conferences when asked. It's a, it's a question of he hasn't brought it in practice, and if you don't bring it in practice, you're not going to get to play in the game. And then – to top it off, when he has gotten in the game, as you said, he has really struggled to shoot the ball. He's a guy I don't think he had ever looked confident when he took the floor in the 10 games that he did. So that that in in and of itself kind of tells you everything you need to know right there. Okay, we're going to put you on the spot, Adam. We want a prediction for the game against the Pirates, and what do you think Xavier's going to do in the Big East regular season this year? Well, this is, this is challenging. You know, I, I, one of the things I like to do before every game is I, you know, maybe I, I don't always publicize it, but I like to try to predict what's going to happen. And, you know, I think about this Xavier team and I think about how frequently we don't know which team's going to show up. And, and you think about that and you also think about the fact that even on – this team kind of has this weird ability to – even when they're not playing good, they're they're playing sloppy, they're turning it over, they're not shooting it well. They somehow still find a way to, to, to stay in games. I mean, even the games they lost this year, Villanova was six points, could have been a lot worse. Wake Forest was two points, should have been a lot worse. Florida was five points, should have been a heck of a lot worse. And I, I think about those two factors, and I think – you know, Xavier is so good at home. I think they know that because of how deep and how tough the Big East this year is this year, they're going to have to protect their home floor. They're going to have to do everything in their power to win every single home game that they have. And because of that, I think I am going to pick Xavier to win this game. But if you asked me this for the for the Xavier trip to Seton Hall, I would pick Seton Hall. So that's kind of where I'm at on this right now. But I do think it's going to be a close game. Um, I think you're going to see not so Najee Marshall, who we talked about earlier, is Xavier's best defender. So he's going to be on Miles Powell all night. It's going to be New Jersey boy against New Jersey boy. That's to me going to tell the tale of this game. Is if if Najee can can limit Miles Powell and sort of stop him from going crazy like he's able to do. That's gonna that's gonna be enough in my opinion to to help Xavier take this one at home. I think it's we're probably looking at like a five point game, something in that region right there. Well, we're also catching you, Adam, before Xavier takes their home floor against St. John's this weekend. If hypothetically St. John's were to, in my opinion, pull an upset in that game, does that change the outlook come Wednesday night? 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly increases the level of desperation on, from Xavier's perspective because, I mean, this is a situation with the Big East this year. I'm sure that we're going to talk about it, but every night is so important. I know you could say that every year, but even just last year, there were still games last year on the Big East schedule where you, you weren't as worried. I don't think you can say that this year. I think that starting 0-3 in the Big East would be a approaching a disaster level for the Xavier team, for a team that a lot of people in that building here in Cincinnati had high, high hopes for this year. It looked like you were going to sneak out without giving us a prediction for the season. Where does Xavier oh, finish season. this year? Ooh, this is tough, man. I mean, I can't – I've I'm mauled this over in my head quite a bit. And, you know, I don't think – I don't think Xavier's better than Villanova. I don't think Xavier's better than Butler. And I don't think they – I mean, I, I want to say that they're going to finish fifth. I, I, I think Creighton Creighton will be ahead of them. Seton Hall will be ahead of them. Villanova will be ahead of them. And Baltimore will be ahead of them. I'm not sure about the order, but I think they, I think they finish middle of the row. We had another beat writer on recently that covers the Seton Hall locally, and he was pretty high on Creighton. What, what's the love affair with Creighton right now? Well, I think – I think what's easy to love about them is the fact that they have multiple guys who can get just absolutely on fire shooting the basketball. And I think that's an easy thing to be envious of when you watch this Xavier team play because they don't really have a guy like that. Tiki Tandy, the freshman, is kind of their only guy who can who can go on like a 12-0 run by himself, like a guy who can just get hotter, hotter like a microwave from the, from the perimeter. But the question for me with Creighton is what do they look like inside? You know, we know about their perimeter game, how well they can attack. I think they also are another team in the Big East that really benefits from that building that they play in. Uh, they're pretty tough to beat to go in there and beat. So, I, I you know, there, there's a lot to like there in Creighton. I think that's fair. I mean, if, if they're shooting the lights out like they did the other night against Marquette, I, it's going to be tough to beat them when they're putting up 90. They just live and die by that three, in my opinion, and they don't they have do, enough yeah. to, to, to balance the nights when they're not, you know, they're not shooting it well. So that's my only concern. And you know what? Defense travels on the road, and I'm just concerned when they go on the road into hostile environments and they just don't have that shooting touch, I, I'd, I'd be concerned about, you know, where where they're going to kind of fall in those type of games. So I, I see them possibly being as high as four. I could see them as low as six or seven, though. Oh, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think that you raise a good point about the defense because that's one of the things where I think Xavier, that that's definitely going to lend itself to them when they go on the road. You saw it a little bit in the Villanova game, how they were able to kind of get back in the game. But, you know, that's going to be the thing is just consistency with them. Both ends of the floor, putting it together for 40 minutes. Well, Adam, we really appreciate the fact that you joined us today and gave us a view behind enemy lines. We certainly got a better perspective of what Xavier brings to the table. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'm happy to do it. You guys, uh, you let me know. I'd love to talk to you again. Absolutely. Happy, happy new year, Adam. Happy new year, guys. But Mike, that's not the only game we have this week. We have Marquette on Saturday, and the bad blood can start percolating already. It's like you want to take Marquette and substitute them for your hatred for Syracuse. It's, it's not even close, but go ahead. You could try. It's a more recent hatred in more than anything. I mean, you could start at the top. Their coach, Wojo, I, He is there a more unlikable coach in the Big East right now than, than the old Dookie? Here's a Marquette team that was, you know, a very good team the last couple of years. Why? Not only because of Marcus Howard, but because of the Hauser brothers. So if the Hauser brothers had come back, Marquette is a top 25 team, possibly even a top 10 team. And now you have this anticipation of who's going to be player of the year, which team is going to go on to the second weekend, and they lose the Hauser brothers. So to me, you know, that's a bigger storyline for Marquette coming into this year than anything else. And it kind of takes away a little bit of the edge for those matchups that we had against last year because half their returning starters are gone. Well, let's take a little perspective on Marquette here. They were picked to finish fourth in the Big East preseason polls this year after finishing second last year. As you mentioned, they lost the Hauser brothers, 
But Marcus Howard has picked up right where he left off last year. As of this recording, he's averaging 25.8 points a game to start, including a 40-point game and a 51-point game back-to-back. His supporting cast is now Sakar Anim and Kobe McEwen, who are both averaging double figures. And everybody's favorite goon, Theo John, is still on the team, averaging a meager five and five. Yeah, five and five. I, 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 I can't. I can't read into five and five. You should accidentally run into five rebounds with that guy's size. I mean, oh, come he, on. He looks bigger this year than he did last year. I don't know if he practiced any jump shots, but I think he was in a weight room all all year long. Look, I I know they got a couple good wins so far. They have a win against Purdue. They have the the win against USC where you reference that Howard puts in the 51 points. But at the end of the day, I, I just see this team kind, kind of being a hot and cold team. And let's reference their first two games in the Big East season just to kind of illustrate that point. They go on the road, and we said it's always going to be tough to play on the road, and they give up 92 against Creighton. 92 is, all, is like playing zero defense. And then you're like, okay, Marquette's going to be in trouble. If it's all Marcus Howard and you got to lock in against these Big East teams – they could be in trouble. And then they come back and they have to host Nova. So you're like, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to be down 0-2 to start the Big East season. And surprise, surprise, they get to the line like 25 times. Nova only gets to the line, you know, single digits. Nova jacks up 38 threes. And Marquette basically controls tempo the entire game. And at one point was up by 20. And now they get a top 10 victory, you know, on their resume. I just think that's the kind of team they're going to be. One night, you're going to be like, wow, this is a a good ball club. And another night, you're going to be like, uh, they got a lot of deficiencies. So once again, we play Marquette at home this week. You got to win the home game. You want to tell me that they they might run into a buzzsaw on the road or Howard's going to feed off the crowd? Can't be losing the home game, in my opinion, to Marquette. Well, you talked about how they looked so far this season, hot and cold. To be honest, their out-of-conference was not really much to write about. You mentioned beating Purdue. I think Purdue was really playing that well anyway. They lost to Wisconsin, which basically is an in-state rivalry game, and they and they got handled by Wisconsin pretty, pretty thoroughly. And then they lost to Maryland, just to give us some kind of uh, similar opponents that we've played. And, and of course, blown they, they got the doors blown off by Maryland in the, the championship right. game of their tournament. And of right? course, though, they come back and beat number 10 Nova. Like I said, a, a Jekyll and Hyde type of team. I think they're going to go as Howard goes. They're probably doing the, the same thing on their side saying, hey, what kind of consistency can we get from the supporting cast? If Howard doesn't get that support, he's going to jack up 25 to 30 shots. And that's probably not going to be a recipe for success. You just hope that you don't run into Marquette on one of those nights where Howard's unconscious, or as you say, you know, you breathe on him and he ends up at the line for 20 free throws. Well, it'll be interesting. We kind of yin and yang with Marquette, to be honest. You know, Quincy McKnight is going to pick up Marcus Howard and Sakara Neem's going to pick up uh, Miles Powell. So it's going to be interesting to see who plays better defense on the big star. How about this? I know it's early in the season to start breaking it down into smaller segments, but you know, we said we'd probably be okay with a one and one last week. We get the two and oh. Are we already gonna start saying, all right, I'll be happy with a one and one this week? Or hey, I want I want to be a haul in here and I want another two and oh. Well, uh, you know, Adam Baum talked about how hard it is to go and play in the Cintas Center. So it's not gonna be an easy road to hoe here, but I can see us going into Xavier and winning that game. And then we come home and we take care of business against Marquette. A 2-0 and week is not out of out of reach here. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but if they find their way to another 2-0 and week and get to 4-0, that's a pretty exciting matchup heading into you know a top 10 Butler team on the road the following week. And the, the, the hype is building again. And that just kind of scares me just a little bit because every time the hype train gets to a level that maybe it shouldn't be, that's kind of when we have to end up pumping the brakes because we have a setback. So maybe one game at a time, but man, 2-0 two and, two and oh would look nice. 4-0 no- at the top of the standings. Well, since you're looking down the road already, Mike, let's talk about the road to 24-94. Miles Powell had a brilliant week, scoring 42 more points over the past two games, and now sits at... 1,917 points for his college career in sole possession of seventh place, passing 
left coast pirates favorite double o mark bryant i'm gonna read his stats so we can keep it in check and then i'll throw it back to you and let you play fanboy for a couple minutes all right so mark bryant two-time all big east selection he was a first team all big east in the 1987-88 season which was his his senior season in which he also led seton hall to their first ever ncaa tournament appearance he finished off his career with some pretty impressive totals 1906 in total points 912 rebounds which still ranks seventh all time he's fifth all time in total career field goals made and he's eighth all time in career field goal percentage uh just north of 50 percent pretty pretty stacked resume there it was an honor to talk to him he, he was a really good interview in my opinion but i Walking into Walsh and watching him play, he had this snarl on his face and it just seemed like he was going to dominate anybody that was going to get in front of him. You were just raw meat and he was going to chew on it. Wasn't that way in the interview, right? He was like, no, not at all. What what an accommodating guy. Uh, But, you know, we joke around, you know, double zero was his number. He was technically patient zero, man. He was recruit number zero. He started the PJ era of recruits coming to Seton Hall. Without him, you know, you might not get those guys that come from New York City and then lead us to the NCAA championship game. Somebody's got to be the trailblazer, right? So so he kind of gets to put his name next to that moniker of, hey, I decided to stay close to home. I decided to make Seton Hall a household name or wanted to to make that effort and actually kind of see the end result. So to stay with the program for four years and see it come to fruition and then have a dominant first round game in the NCAA tournament against Tim Hardaway. And that's just like bragging rights with between him and Timmy for the rest of his life. But looking back, I mean, that's a pretty impressive performance. And we said it, if he, if he didn't get into foul trouble against Arizona, Hey, maybe that Seton Hall team goes on to possibly knock off the number one seed in the second round. It, it just wasn't meant to be, but there's no shame in, in Mark's resume whatsoever. No, not at all. It, it was fantastic. Next up on the list, A relative unknown to today's fan base, Andre McLeod, who scored 1,976 points. And we'll get into him a little further once Miles passes him. Well, the the bigger question is, is, you know, now that Miles is back, can he get back on track to possibly chase down this record? Once again, I'll reference back to Gary Cohen interview. He thinks he's going to fall a little bit short right now. If we were to make five postseason contests, Miles needs to average from this point on 27 and a half points a game that's a pretty tall task i i love the fact that in the georgetown game we played a balanced offense without sandro so when sandro does come back late january early february if we are playing this balanced offensive scoring probably not gonna get 27 and a half for miles i hate to say it i keep on going back and forth i'm going back to he falls just a little bit short of Terry's record at this point. It just goes to show what a crazy tough record it is. You have to stay healthy for four seasons. You have to have some good luck. It, it's a tough record. Look, we, we said that the, the record would be the cherry on top for the season. So at this point, I just want two more wins. Let's go Pirates. Big week ahead. Go Big Blue. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Tony L, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Pirates. <laughs>